In three, two, one. Welcome back to another episode of What the Bleep Are They Talking About? The podcast where we help you understand what everyone is talking about in the news today. I'm Jack. I'm Jennifer. And before we get started, make sure you share this content with everybody. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and follow us on all the social media. And remember, guys, only follow us in our content or we get really sad. But seriously, make sure you get content from all over the place because we don't want you being left in the dark like some people in the world today. And Jennifer, on today's podcast, we have an extra special guest, and she's going to help us understand Florida politics as they're happening in District 19. And you want to know why? Why? Because she's running in District 19. That's awesome. That's kind is... of our whole whole deal here. Yeah. Yes, you, you said it. <laughs> uh, so this candidate uh, is Dr. Cindy, and she previously ran for Florida District number 19 in 2020, but she lost. But she's back for more. She's not giving up. She's not giving up on the people in District 19. And I even had a funny pun. She's stepping back into the ring, Jennifer. Do you know why that's funny? I think I know why that's funny, but tell our viewers, Jack. Okay, because not only does she have a master's degree, and not only does she have a doctorate, but she was also a professional boxer for a short stint. So this woman does it all, guys. She does, and we have to be careful, because honestly, Jennifer, if we mess this up tonight, she's going to beat us up. We might be off to a great start. <laughs> but let's introduce our guest for the tonight. It is Dr. Cindy Beignet. How you doing? Hello. Hey. hey. For having uh, me. Thank you for coming on the show. How is it in uh, District 19? Well, it's been unseasonably cold this weekend, but otherwise, you know, the sun's shining. <laughs> yeah, finally. Uh, I think today was 70, and for the last four weeks for the viewers, it was about 35 degrees Which we're not awful. used to in florida guys <laughs> absolutely not <laughs> uh but for the viewers out there tonight we have cindy on to answer a few questions a few questions that we came up with ourselves a few viewers submitted questions as well but jennifer has the timer i have the questions and cindy has the answers let's see what we can find out from cindy what's going on in district 19 and who she will be at the national level. Cindy, are you ready for our questions? Absolutely. Awesome, so let's get started. Many people paint political parties in a solid shade of blue or red, failing to realize the political spectrum that exists even inside the parties themselves. For instance, the Democrats have the progressives, the establishment dem Democrats, and even the Democrat populists. And on the right, of course, you have everyone in everyone in between. So Cindy, where do you lie on the political spectrum inside the Democratic Party? Well, I can tell you 100%, I'm not a corporate Democrat at all. I take no corporate dollars, as a matter of fact. I am not part of any establishment. I'm a working class mom. And I have very progressive policies, because I think those are the ones that serve the people the most. That's so interesting. Uh, so I have a question for you. In 2020, Pre President Joe Biden was kind of promulgated as a moderate Democrat. But since he was elected into office, we've been pushing more progressive items. Um, how would you rate the Biden administration so far, uh, considering that you are more of a progressive and, and may be more interested in items like the Build Back Better agenda and maybe some of the more controversial items like the... the, the um, uh, the VAX mandate. How do you think he's doing so far? 
You know, honestly, I give President Biden an A for effort. It's been a real challenge to deal with the obstructionism of McConnell and the congressional Republicans. I believe that my progressive friends in Congress have been doing what they were sent there to do, which is lift the progressive agenda to make sure that the people are being served. And we are just over a year into the Biden administration with some pretty significant things passed, including the uh, American Rescue Plan, which is pouring millions of dollars into local governments all across the United States, as well as provided for the child tax credit and the stimulus checks. Those were huge things for working families. Now, of course, in Build Back Better, there was a whole lot more, including universal pre-K and uh, higher education for free, and I would like to have seen those. Unfortunately, we have Mansion and Cinema, and they are causing a whole lot of problems to be able to get through what should otherwise be a pretty robust democratic agenda. That's so interesting. So what do you think of the whole argument about kind of getting rid of the filibuster, right? So Democrats see Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema as kind of the the barrier to getting a lot of these programs passed through. And there's a lot of talk about getting the filibuster kind of removed so that we can push through some of these items that many Americans do want. What is your stance on kind of taking down those norms that we've had for, for quite a long time that are also protective in some ways? Well, I think what's really important to remember about the filibuster is that it's been weaponized, right? Mm -hmm. It was never meant to be a tool for minoritarian rule, which is exactly what Mitch McConnell has made it. He has made it something that every single time that debate comes up for a bill, he can kill it without the 60 votes. And that's ridiculous. It has never been the point of the filibuster to do that. It had been a tool in the toolbox that had been used when people in Congress had, in the Senate, had a philosophical difference and they really wanted to make a stand on something. And they actually physically had to stand, right? And so when we look back in history, it was the Senator standing there reading the phone book and whatever. Now, unfortunately, it was often used to fight against civil rights and that was not a great history that we should be preserving, frankly. But um, it, you know, I do appreciate the fact that we had a tool that was there for to give some sort of leverage for minority voice, voices. But it was never meant for them to be able to stop the majority from action. So my question is, so a lot of the polls show that Democrats are in a losing position for the 2022 midterms. Do you think it's a good idea right now to get rid of the filibuster if the possibility arises that Republicans do take control of the House in 2022 and then kind of that barrier is gone, which allows them to kind of push through uh, pretty much whatever they would like with a simple majority? Well, isn't that always the case with when it comes to rules and regulations? And there was the same kind of criticism with Barack Obama and the executive order. Right. And if it was used too much and for policy oriented things, then we were going to see an increased use by other parties and for other reasons. And so, you know, I, I think that this becomes a complicating factor for the filibuster. So I would like to see the end of it being weaponized. So I'm 
think I might go back into fall into the camp where I say, okay, if you're going to do this, it, there has to be some type of rules around how often it can be used. It can't be used for every single cloture vote and maybe go back to the standing filibuster. Okay. And I had a question. So when it comes to the filibuster, people often mention that, you know, the just because we have the majority in the House or, or, or in the Senate, I should say, just because we have a majority in the House, that means we can kind of push through anything we want. But but I also I always have this question. Right. So so Democrats aren't just a single solid voting block. Right. They're made up of progressives, establishment Democrats, maybe more left leaning individuals, kind of more independent in the middle kind of guys. So not everyone agrees on everything all the time. So does that mean that, you know, the idea of majority rule kind of goes out the window when you break it down into different subsects and what different people want? Well, I mean, it, it does if you think about it in terms of how you can get policy and legislation across. I mean, it's still Democrats as a, as a voting bloc. I mean, they still caucus together as Democrats and even in their subgroups, right? We have the fundamental principles that we believe in democracy. We believe in putting people first. We believe in service above self. And that stands very much opposed to the folks on the right. So I think that there's a lot of underlying principles that bring Democrats together. So we can still say that we have a majority, but because there are so many strong people who got elected to push very progressive ideals, it's changing the narrative. And, and I'm all here for dialogue. So let me change gears a little bit. So in a Gallup poll released in October of 2021, American trust in the media was at its lowest since 2016. According to the poll, only 36% of Americans had a great deal or fair amount of trust in the media. So I guess my question for you is, where do you get your media and who do you trust? Well, um, I am an elder millennial, so I'm all over the digital. I'm looking at Facebook and Twitter and, of course, keeping up with uh, all the things happening on Instagram and TikTok as well. But I am also an academic in my background. So part of that means that I have a thirst for knowledge and truth and that I am very careful about what I consume. So I actually teach this to my students at the university I teach at, how to decipher high quality versus low quality information, how you can tell whether or not a website is peddling good information, if they have credentials, if they have other backing organizations or institutions, if they can cite their data from other sources. Uh, frankly, a lot of these bogus and disinformation places or opinion shops or whatever you want to call them, they don't even bother trying to give the appearance of being high quality information. They're just so used to getting, you know, having it be shiny on the internet and people taking it in that they don't even care. They don't even care. So I, I always talk a lot about how we can identify it and, and get rid of fake news. And I have a rule in my classroom. I said, no fake news, no misinformation. So I use AP all the time, Associated Press, and they never have, and I should, I should stop using them, honestly, but I use it for the headline and then I get the Instagram post, but they never put an author in the story. But luckily, we also use Ground News, small shout out, and they provide links to other sources as well, right? So, you, so, so, so it's not, I'm not putting out fake news <laughs> myself, but um, who on, what, how would you define fake news and, and who is pushing it the most, do you think? 
Well, I love and and I wish I could remember uh, the actual website that does it, but there is, uh, I think it's called AdSource or something, but they basically have a, a chart showing the bias in all these different types of media. So it's print media or you know digital online newspapers, periodicals, podcasts, television news shows, and it, they it's you know how factual they are versus their partisan um, splits. And so that's really helpful to know because if you're reading the ones that are down here in the highly opinion and highly you know variations of reality and interpretation you know that you're not getting high quality information but you know what's interesting about the associated press that you're talking about is that i believe that that actually doesn't even have a human author hmm. <laughs> they are bot written and really? they have a tendency to um be as straightforward as possible and i think reuters is like that as well um mm -hmm. so because they try to get uh you know the information not biased by human writers and apparently you know it's cheaper so um but check check me out on that one but i think that that's one of the reasons why they don't have a specific author is because it's not it's a bot so that's an interesting thing that we have to deal with now as well tell me a little bit more about that I, I, that's actually pretty interesting so what does the bot do specifically and maybe you don't know and, and, and this is totally off base but are they is the bot scanning other newspapers and and kind of throwing together a jumble for for this this article yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons why the Associated Press articles are really short and writers, too. Um, and I don't know the technical side of it. Forgive me. I'm not a, a journalist. I'm a consumer of news myself. But um, but yeah, it's something like with the news wires and kind of they used to have that back in the day. But they rather than have a, a human write it, it's it's got a program that basically gives you fact point by point in it. So there's, you know, little to no analysis because it hasn't been programmed to have it. That yeah. explains why some of the sentences sometimes don't make sense. Because sometimes we're like, what are they saying there? Yeah. <laughs> so if you can cite the Associated Press or the Reuters, you're usually going to get you know, fairly decent real-time information. Because that's the other thing I always tell my students, too. I was like, you got to remember these periodicals. It's happening real-time. And you, know, you may get different information retrospectively a week after an event than you have from an, uh, an article that came out before all the facts were out, right? So, you know, you have to be careful, but if you're citing that AP source, you're better than citing, you know, Breitbart. We've noticed, um, what what is it, the Daily Mail. So we never used to look at the Daily Mail and we kind of occasionally look at the Daily Mail, but it usually surprises us. And now it is, I think it's a right-wing outlet or more right-leaning. But for some reason, it seems to be a lot more detailed than a lot of the other sources that we look at. And again, we use Ground News, so we get to look at the entire spectrum of articles that are that are being put out there. Uh, but that's so interesting. Um, but let me switch to this question about unity. So as a candidate, you have often championed the message about unity. For instance, on January 19th, when you announced your second run for Congress, you wrote, quote, if we want unity and the government that works, we need someone who will put the people first. What does unity look like for you? And are you willing to find common ground despite strong opposition towards Republicans? Well, yeah, absolutely. Because it is about putting the people first. And we were talking a little bit about this beforehand, but um, one of the ways that we can do that is rather than having huge omnibus bills, having very targeted and focused 
builds on smaller portions. You can actually build consensus around something, especially if you can clearly identify it, right? One of the problems with the Build Back Better is like it's this huge, ginormous thing and, and people don't really know what's in it. But if you say, hey, you know, do you support a minimum wage, right? And that's wildly like popular, even in my district, right? So that uh, beat out in my district 19 on the ballot in the state of Florida, the, the $15 minimum wage pulled 65% here, whereas Joe Biden only pulled 42%, right? So we're, you know, like it's it's not, um, it, it's not, doesn't behoove us to make these big giant things that we have to create marketing and messaging around. And yeah, you can find, you know, if people know that they have to go back to their constituents and say, hey, I voted against this thing that 65% of the people in my district wanted, you got a lot more explaining to do. So in a recent poll by Newsweek, and this was a couple of days ago, President Trump had a backing for the 2024 presidential run among Republicans of 57%. Now, I've noticed that the Democrats don't tend to like Trump. Is that going to get in the way of unity in 2022 or 2024 with so many people still kind of on the Trump hype train? I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's, but it has nothing to do with the Democrats' whim. It's going to be that that's Trump's brand. Mm -hmm. He wants to get everybody hyped up on red meat, culture war issues, and oversimplify complexity because it's easier for him to get votes that way. So, yeah, you know, the one thing that I will say is that if we can actually get some of our Republican friends to, you know, get clean from Trump, then we can build bipartisanship. Because I, I've actually worked on Capitol Hill, by the way, for Republicans and Democrats. And I worked on Capitol Hill during the era of, of bipartisanship in the beginning of the 2000s. And it was fantastic. You know, members of Congress would actually call each other and say, hey, you're not being bipartisan. And it was an insult. And things got done. And it was not something that everybody was a winner on. But uh, things got done for the American people. And I think that we can get back there. But unfortunately, if we have a whole bunch of members who are just lockstep with Trump because it'll put a lot of money in their bank account and because it'll fill stadiums full of rabid people who will, you know, I don't know, attack the U.S. Capitol at, on a whim, then uh, we're going to have a whole lot harder of a time not only finding unity and bipartisanship, but frankly, holding together our democracy. Do you think that Republicans even want unity, right? So what yeah. I've noticed over the last four years is, is politics has really gotten pretty bad. And unfortunately, it's been bad on both sides, right? I, I'm able to call it out on both sides. Both parties have been terrible. Democrats have been terrible to Republicans. Republicans have been terrible to Democrats. If Republicans regain control in 2022 or 2024, do you, do you think they even want unity after, you know, the way that we've been treating each other for, for so long? No, no, they don't. <laughs> I mean, I, and I can actually tell you that from some research that I did here in Southwest Florida, right after the 2016 election, I was working with Gulf Shore Business Magazine, and we were holding convenings of people who were, you know, left-leaning and right-leaning and kind of seeing what issues were important to them. And because we, that was, you know, some of the, let's call it opening of the divisions, right? in our politics. And it was very fascinating to me that we actually had 
you know, amongst those groups, and then we put cross groups of people together, is that what you saw a lot of times were people who were left-leaning had these certain things that were going on. They, they had experienced racism in their life. They had sick children. Uh, they had bankruptcy, right? And they just wanted to reach out and say, hey, you know, listen to my story and we can work together. But what I saw from the folks, the regular everyday people who would consider themselves Republican or conservative, they honestly just didn't even want to hear it. And I think it was really disheartening on that. And I mean, I was physically watching neighbors turn their backs on one another because they didn't want to hear those issues because it didn't fall into their paradigm or something that they wanted to deal with. So, you know, I, I'm very, very worried about the hyped up rhetoric because we're not in a good place where unity can be built unless we start rolling that type of stuff back. And how do we start doing that? Well, you know, I think we're going to have to deal with Trump, whether we like it or not. I do appreciate when folks in his own party are standing up and calling out some of the unethical, um, you know, inflammatory things that he does. But unfortunately, there's so many people like my opponent, Byron Donalds, who are just so happy with their fat sacks. They're just so happy to get their bank account filled with all those Trump dollars and um, that they don't care, that they don't care. So, I mean, I think it's gonna take people with courage who really want to preserve our democracy, who really want to fight for the people to continue to stand up on both sides of the aisle and to work towards that goal of what's important for our country. And that is preserving our democracy and making sure that people can vote. And that is making sure that our policies are people-focused and not money and corporate-focused, which is unfortunately they, they are too often. And we've disenfranchised so many people as Republicans because there's a significant portion of our party who is also happy taking those dollars into their bank account. Well, God willing. I mean, honestly, uh, things are getting a little bit out of hand. And I think a lot of so a lot of people talk about 2022 being the, the time for more centrist individuals to kind of come out of the woodwork and kind of kind of take on both parties or at least more moderate individuals. So we'll see what happens in, in the next couple of years. Some people say it'll get worse. Some people say it'll get better. But I do have a fun question for you. So if you are elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 2022, we've got our fingers crossed. And should the Democrats hold Onto the majority in 2022, who will you be voting for for Speaker of the House? <laughs> you know what? I don't know, because who's going to run then? I don't know. Um, you know, Nancy Pelosi doesn't seem to be stepping aside at any point in time, but maybe she will in 2022. I mean, there's one thing that I'll say is that, you know, I may not agree 100% with, you know, some of the things that we talked about being, you know, a corporate establishment uh, type of Democrat. But I will say 100% that Nancy Pelosi is one heck of a politician and she can bring people together and she has stayed strong through so much adversity in this country, right? Just over the past few years that, you know, I, I really appreciate that type of leadership, even if our platform are not 100% aligned. 
Yeah, and I kind of agree with you. So I was reading your website, and, and one thing you mentioned was term limits. And a lot of people say, oh, these people have been in office for so long, they need to get the heck out of there and, and step aside and give other people a turn. Um, but what you wrote on your website is essentially that we need people who know what to do in office. We need people who know how to lead and who have been doing it for, for a long time, even if they've been in for a, a little longer than past their prime. And I kind of agree with that and, and slightly disagree, right? So my policy is just a little bit different. But I do agree that you do need to allow people who know how to run the show to run the show. Um, but switching gear a little bit, on a CNN segment from August 6th, CDC Director Michelle Wolinsky spoke that vaccines cannot, quote, prevent transmissions, rather the, rather that the importance of the vaccine is to prevent severe illness in those patients at risk for severe complications. This statement, of course, came prior to the outbreak of the less deadly but more transmissible Omicron variant by comparison to other variants. Not to say that it's totally not deadly. Meanwhile, countries such as the UK, the Netherlands, and Denmark have all recently decided to scrap their COVID-19 restrictions to pursue treating COVID-19 as an endemic. So my question for you is, what is your position on vaccine mandates and COVID-19 restrictions moving forward? And if you were elected into Congress, would you struck down in the time where we didn't know what was going on, the time where we didn't have the vaccine, where we didn't know about treatment, and... I think that we are looking at it, the pandemic becoming endemic and knowing what we know about the Supreme Court's decision, I think that mandates are not going to be a way forward for us at this point in time. Um, so one question that I've asked a lot of different candidates is, do you think that the state's still hold the right though to to mandate vaccines considering the the tenth amendment of the of the constitution and what is your opinion on um, private businesses instituting their own vaccine mandates yeah i think both of those are totally acceptable as well the fact of the matter is is that we've had vaccines for lots of different diseases for a long time you know we've had vaccine mandates in school for decades and decades, right? You have to provide your vaccination status. My daughter's entering kindergarten. That's one of the documents that I have to provide to her school in order to get her signed up. So these are not new, you know, and if honestly the doctors, uh, you know, and the, the public uh, disease specialists tell us that this would be a good idea to include in that and the science backs it up, then 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 maybe we, we reconsider that um, but even that is still not a nationwide mandate, right? It's still school district by school district, state by state, and you know businesses as well. So I think that we can allow that decision to continue to move forward in the way that it's panning out. Um, but isn't it isn't it new in the fact that previously we didn't have to have a vaccine to get into a a, a previously public. Uh, accommodation like a like a grocery store or, or, or going to the movies or a venue or, or something like that so it is a little bit new 
I mean, yes and no, but that's we we also you know we weren't alive during the the, the polio pandemic, right? Thank like God. We were, I mean, so like we have the vaccine and now we have it, and like everybody has it to keep that away, right? You know, will we get to the point where, like with the flu, that COVID is so you know the it's severe for those who have issues, but it's really not that big of a deal for us that we don't necessarily have to mandate it. But even in some workplaces, like if you're working for a hospital system, they you know, oftentimes mandate flu vaccines as well. And maybe some school districts do as well. I mean, mine personally doesn't, um, but they do mandate the other vaccines. So the reason it's different in the public sense is because we were able to get the vaccine while we still had the pandemic which hadn't happened in the same time frame before. So as of January 30th, 64% of Americans have received two doses of the COVID-19 vaccine. Thank God, it's about time. Although we are falling behind Europe. I think they're at 76% in some places. 75.8% uh, have received one dose of the vaccine and 26.5% of Americans have received the booster shot. Uh, so my question for you is, on a personal level, has the pandemic ended? And if not, when will it be over for you personally? I mean, I, you know, <laughs> pandemics aren't personal. They're public. So, you know, the pandemic's done when it's run its course. You know, if we have another wild uh, variant that comes along and it's evading vaccines, we'll have to see how that goes. I mean, I personally actually did uh, contract COVID earlier this year. I, you know, was the Omicron variant. I was exposed at my daughter's school. I found out when I was en route to my grandmother's funeral in Michigan, and I ended up having to stay in isolation uh, for the five days while I was in Michigan. And um, so not only, and I was vaccinated and boost and I still got it, um, luckily and condition and it actually, I had some effects to it. I'm still just getting over the deep lung stuff and, and the brain fog was quite, quite real as well. And my parents had the same, uh, same symptoms as well. So, you know, we don't really get to determine as individuals when the pandemic is done, you know, we can determine how, how we feel about it. Right. Which is, I'm like everybody else. I'm, I'm. I'm tired of it. I, I don't like to wear the mask. It's it's annoying to talk about all the time. But the fact of the matter is, is, you know, a lot of places across the country, now the death rates are extremely high because Omicron was so virulent that it affected so many people that we're having a whole lot of people die. And it's not over for those folks. And it's not over for the almost 1 million people in the United States who have died from it. I mean, it's over, over for them, like completely over. So we can't just, you know, wave a wand and say that we want that the pandemic's done because we don't we don't like talking about masks anymore. So, you know, I, I, I still say that public health is really important and that we should put the the health of the majority of the people ahead of people's feelings on it. But I do think that the science is showing us that the, the pandemic itself is, is coming to the point of being endemic and less serious. And with that will come new uh, recommendations for it. And, and I do believe in the not so distant future that we will be out of the full blown pandemic phase. 
I think a better way to uh, to I, I think a better way to ask my question is when w when do you feel safe? Because there are a lot of people out there who have been vaccinated, but because of the things that they've been listening to, they still feel very very afraid, even though they have been vaccinated and the vaccine has been shown to be very very effective to to covering severe illnesses. So I guess the better way to rephrase that is when when do you feel safe, or when will you feel feel safe? I mean, luckily for me, now that I've, I have had my vaccines. So when I did contract the extremely catchy version of Omicron, it was less severe, you know, and actually, you know, when I look back at it, I'm, I don't, I, I'm glad I didn't get the more severe version of it because I would have, I was already, it already incapacitated me for basically two weeks. So what would it have looked like? Will it have affected my lungs and my heart even more? You know, it's, um, you know, so that's I feel protected and that we did the right thing by avoiding the uh, the, the more severe cases of it earlier because we were you know distancing and masking and and I by the way I still do all of those things carrying the, the hand sanitizer around and I, you know I I'll feel safe when I know that people are not dying in droves from this disease. And I will admit, so I had the, the OG version of COVID and it was not good. I think I was out for 10 days. It was horrible. Um, everything tasted like cheese. That wasn't the worst part, but that was the, the, the strangest part. Everything tasted like cheese. And I have this whole story about I, I bought like four gallons of pretzels because I thought they tasted like cheese. And then after it went away, nothing tasted like cheese and they were terrible pretzels. But yes, it's <laughs> not something to be taken lightly. COVID is terrible. Uh, so I have a, I have a an interesting question for you. So this is, as of late, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer was rushed to announce his retirement from the court. I think that was last Wednesday. Uh, many have speculated that this move was a response to a potential Democrat defeat in the midterms. Regardless, the Senate is currently tied 50-50, and the question as to whether Vice President Kamala Harris can provide the tie-breaking vote to nominate a Supreme Court justice is on the table because it's never come up before. Allows the vice president has this particular West Constitution and the proceedings. Filibuster rules change this time around. Should from what I'm, you know, again, a point the excitement of uh, won't just be on cruise that are not what nominee the vice president to bring with you. I don't voting for for a Democrat into that position. Uh, said he. I, I something. I don't don't don't. It I seems to be in the something air. About one thing about not rushing the process. So. I guess it's really just up in the air at this point. Well, we'll see. We're going to have to see. <laughs> uh, so another trending topic. So recently, the Biden administration praised General Motors and Ford for the
pursuit and the electric vehicle industries. This was two days ago. Since taking office, the Biden administration has largely ignored Tesla, according to a report by MarketWatch. Despite the company's massive success in revolutionizing and popularizing the electric vehicle industry, while also pursuing a green energy future through the production of solar panels. In, in order for their fleet vehicles from Tesla, right? Um, so they're not being completely ignored in this. Um, however, Tesla also today, you know, recalled all of, all of their self-driving cars. So, you know, they um, have some issues going on with their technology as well. And even with their Hertz order, and that was a private business, and even though it would be a large order, it's far smaller than the order that the government would do for their fleet vehicles. Um, they've had problems, I've heard from people on the inside with even getting that prepared because the one thing that Tesla has had issues with in the long run is scalability and the ability to mass produce something on a scale that the government went down. However, Ford and GM have that capabilities. And I, I can speak with a fair amount of authority on this, um, not only because I grew up outside of Detroit and Michigan, but my dad actually works on the electric vehicles um, early on for GM. So I have some insight as to their scalability and the fact that they've, they've had fleet vehicles uh, with the EV as well previously. So um, I think the biggest competing factor in all of that is uh, the chip shortage. So <laughs> we're, we're gonna be talking about who should get the order, but the fact is, is that uh, we're gonna have a hard time fulfilling any of them unless we actually get some of those uh, chips that the, the, the government was going to try to expedite or ma manufacture in different ways. So, True, but uh, the Tesla, they are opening, I believe it's two or three additional gigawatt factories, and their whole plan is to eventually be able to reach that economy of scale. And they are the first ones to produce and market and revolutionize the electric vehicle. They do have several models on the road. They are making sales. As of last year, they did start to turn a profit, and this year they just released their, their new earnings, and they have been more profitable this year than last year, and they've been successful despite the chip shortage. So to me, when it comes to, to green energy it's and the Biden administration, it just seems like is it really helping green energy and climate change if we're kind of ignoring the company that is kind of doing everything that they're supposed to be doing right now while we're kind of giving people that aren't doing that are trying to catch up we're not focusing on the person who's doing it now but we're focusing on people who need to, to catch up uh, I, mean, I don't think that's a fair characterization i mean you know it was 20 years ago when my dad was working on that for, for gm so i mean they're not they're not behind in it, they, they were more conscientious about getting it to market because of the scalability, frankly, the same problems that Tesla is coming into right now. So um, also, by the way, Tesla had said that by 2018, all of the cars that they produced were gonna be self-driving and that hasn't happened. So, you know, I don't know, and I'm not gonna pretend to understand the politics that are that are going on behind it with Elon Musk and, and everybody, but with the government already having criticism from you know not investing in products and places that are going to be successful for them even if for instance they're going to buy fleet vehicles then 
then why would you want to put some uh, money on a company that has yet to produce the scale that you would need them? Whereas these other bigger established companies have the track record of doing so, whether or not it's just purely green technology, but it's manufacturing overall. So, you know, I, I that's where I, I land on that. Um, I would love to have a Tesla personally. I think they're really cool. But um, do I think they would be a good bet for us with their hopes of scalability someday? I, you know, I'm not sure if that's a great investment. So I have another question about climate change. So despite leaving the Paris Climate Accord, the United States achieved greater levels of carbon uh, decrease compared to other countries that remained on the climate accord, according to a report from 2021. Uh, uh, do you believe that political gestures are entirely necessary to achieve preferable outcomes when consumerism perpetuates most change within an industry? For instance, most Western consumers want green products due to our financial privilege to worry about the environment as such industries have shifted practices towards a more, quote, social corporate responsibility model to align with a with the demands of the consumer, uh, such as being more green. So is it more so, do we need all of this bureaucratic oversight or is it more, which is more influential, bureaucrats, uh, bureaucratic policy or consumerism when it comes to the green energy revolution? Well, frankly, policy dictates a heck of a lot. You know, it's true that consumers through are driving some of these initiatives through corporate social responsibility, but there's a lot of things that happen behind the scenes in manufacturing, for instance, that consumers don't necessarily understand about. Um, and that is actually where government policy can be effective. So one of the hugest effects on our cli on climate change is refrigeration. Right. So, you know, we talk a lot about these other things that are like we can see, right, that the coal, the oil, the cars, right, like because those are things that we have in our house and, and around us. Right. But refrigerants are like ripping apart our atmosphere. OK. And the only way that that is really going to come under control is if there are regulations related to it. Right. Um, as well as for some of the other components around responsible consumption. So same thing with um, methane. Methane is one of the hugest contributors uh, in terms of greenhouse gases. And but you know when you're sitting down and you're eating a hamburger, are you thinking you know ten steps behind to the ranchers who made those cows in the first place, right? Who raised those cows, right? You're, you're probably not, right? So our consumerism culture only can go so far, and we already know that we don't understand the supply chain, right? So. We, we actually need, you know, when there are people who do want to be green in their purchases and don't recognize some of the negative effects that their purchases may have backwards on the supply chain, this is where you need to have government regulations in those places where those industries are in order to maintain environmental standards. And actually, there are countries all over the world that have proven that with these types of policies, you see much bigger advances in reducing greenhouse gases and improving the local environment. So I think we have time for just one more question, and it's a big one. So over the last few weeks, Twitter and YouTube have suspended several 
prominent individuals, including, of course, the much controversial Dr. Robert Malone, who appeared on the Joe Rogan podcast, uh, Republican Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Republican political commentator Dan Bongino. Likewise, left-wing political commentators such as Hassan Piker and Vosh were also banned from Twitch. So, of course, you have these censorship policies. They're affecting both people on the right and on the left. Uh, so what is your position on social media censorship, and should certain ideas be moderated? Okay, so here's the thing. And by the way, let me just start by saying Dan Bongino was a carpetbagger in Florida 19 in 2012 and lost bigly. Okay, and I just like to say that anytime we're talking about Dan Bongino, because I want to remind everybody what a big loser he is to begin with. Um, but here's the thing when we talk about this, this is not censorship. Okay, censorship is when there is something of authority, when there's a governing body that determines whether or not something can be seen. So, for instance, the book banning that we're seeing. Uh, that is being pushed in school boards across Florida, that is being pushed in Texas and all across the country, that's censoring books. That's taking it out of circulation for children. No one can ever hear or see that if there are children in that school district, okay? And that's an authority taking that out of circulation. All of these platforms have their terms of service, right? Twitter, they're private companies, right? And some of them have public listings like Facebook, right? But but they're ultimately everybody who's a user on that you're agreeing to their rules and most of us don't think of it like that because it's all free and basically magic to the vast majority of americans but the fact is when you sign up for that it says you're going to do this and this and this and this and you know it's usually the basic stuff no you know no nudity no profit whatever you know like and that if you're doing something that violates our community standards then we can take xyz you know, re responses to it. And that's really what we're seeing. So I, really, this is when people talk about the, the, the censorship of big tech and blah, blah, blah. This is red, you know, red meat baloney for the far right. And if they don't like it, go start your own platform, which is what they all really want to do anyway, because this is all just blown out of proportion because each one of them wants to start their own platform and make their own money. Okay. So this is like, I just don't even buy it. I don't even care. And yeah, if, if you're out there peddling disinformation and misinformation because, you know, you're Marjorie Taylor Greene and if you, every time you say something insane and promote a conspiracy theory, you can raise a bunch of money for your campaign, I don't care, okay? She can, she can be thrown off, you know? And if you're Dan Bongino who wants to sell ads on your crappy, you know, fake Rush Limbaugh show uh, by saying things that are going to feed your base and lead them down a rabbit hole, you know what? Go, yeah, go start your own channel and you can, you know, have them in that echo chamber. I, you know, I just, I am, I really think that we are at a very important time when it comes to misinformation and it's being manipulated in so many different ways and people are getting bunk information and it's destabilizing our institutions because people don't trust something as simple and benign as the, the, the CDC or OSHA. I mean, you know, Governor DeSantis has on one of his legislative list, wish lists pull out of OSHA, right? Like, who's ever been super mad at OSHA until now, right? Like, and it's all based on this misinformation and this desire by the far right to keep people whipped up. And so, you know, if they get kicked off because they didn't follow the rules of a private company's platform, Go to another platform. This is America, right? Market, 
go ahead, right? But it's not an impingement on freedom of speech. It's not a, a first right amendment violation. And it's not censorship because it's not the government. Now, that has to go for both the left wing and the right wing people who are being banned on these platforms as well. But my question, when it comes to trust, does banning people from these social media platforms because of the things that they're saying, does this improve trust? Or do they then say, oh my gosh, look what's happening. These voices are going away. Clearly, there must be something behind this. And so that really just seeds even more distrust rather than just letting people speak and letting people comment on their speech saying, hey, this is why you're wrong for this reason, this reason, and this reason. Well, actually, the research on conspiracy theory shows us that the more that you basically cut their ability to do infect everybody, the, the more effective you are at curtailing the conspiracies themselves. So actually, it was really effective to throw some of these folks who were the biggest, you know, COVID information, disinformation spreaders out. It, because it's not just that one person and that's not just that one argument, it's how it's shared and shared and shared and shared across multiple places, right? So this is not, this is not a curtail of free speech. This is, this is an aberration of, of speech, right? And no, you're not, if somebody is really, and if they're, here's the thing, if they're buying in to that conspiracy, 